Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hello, good morning, and welcome to the Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray. Coming up, the IFA continues its blockade of certain food wholesalers as its fight for better beef prices continues. School secretaries are to recommend industrial action over pay. Labour Senator Jed Nash will tell us why he believes the current offer on the table is an insult. AIM2 leader Pather Tobin has accused Fine Gael of using the Navan Dublin rail line as a political football. He'll tell us why. Jim Wells of the DUP will be responding to comments by Mary Lou MacDonald of Sinn Féin, who said Stormont could be up and running by Christmas. Meath councillor Ronan Moore will be with us to discuss the gender pay gap review. Fianna Fáil councillor John Sheridan says the government has let down commuters in counties Louth and Meath. He'll tell us why more needs to be done to develop remote working. And we'll have our weekly update on crime in the Louth-Meath division farm on Garda Shia But first, beef farmers are continuing to protest over the prices they are being paid by meat producers for beef at various locations around the country. Already, protests have taken place at food wholesale centres in Nace, Charleville, Donabate and today at Musgraves in Kilcock. So far, the Larry Goodman-owned ABP unit has raised prices. However, farmers are saying the prices uh, are not enough so far. I'm joined on the line now by Joe Healy, who is the president of the Irish Farmers Association. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Ken. Um, You've moved your protest to Musgraves in Kilcock today. Why so? Well, as I said, it's really where we are today is another retailer. Um, Rather than singling them out, uh, they're six of one and a half, a dozen of another. We started it last Thursday. And um, we've moved from one retailer to the next. And it's to get a very clear message through the retailers onto the processors that the beef farmers need a, pay, a price rise and they need it immediately. The, because the retailers have got away pretty free in what is without doubt a dysfunctional food chain. Um, you know, where the processors make money, the retailers make money, and the farmers are making a loss for quite some time now. Because we can't be expected to continue to produce a top quality product to the highest standards in the world, both from a health point of view and an environmental point of view, and still be expected to sell that product at 50 cents per kilo below the cost of production. That's a loss, Ken, of 200 euros per animal. 
Well, now, ABP uh, offered a price rise last week. Were you happy with that? No, uh, because really that price rise that ABP and the Goodman Group offered only brought them back up really in line with a number of other plants. It was derisory. It varied between 5 and 10 uh, cent, and it was typical of the Goodman Group in the way they announced it. They put out a statement first, and they put no figure on it. They just alluded to a price increase. Um, then they followed that up with a leak to the media where they mentioned 5 cent per kilo increase, and they were telling some of their own men on the ground that it was a 10 cent uh, increase. As it transpired, none of the three uh, above were accurate, and um, what we have heard from farmers is that it has reflected in a, a 5 cent uh, per kilo increase for heifers and a 10 cent per kilo increase on steers. But it's not nearly enough, and it merely brings them up into line because they were so far behind uh, everyone else. But there needs to be a significant price rise because, Ken, this isn't a shot in the dark here now. We we followed, uh, we examined the markets ourselves last in IFA last July at our National Council meeting. And at that time, despite the prices being bad in Ireland, the facts were that the prices were pretty poor in our main markets across Europe where we put in 90% of our beef, including the UK. So we didn't see the point at the time for a protest. So what we had achieved at that stage was the 100 million uh, that IFA lobbied on throughout springtime. And that's been paid out to farmers now that suffered losses from last September to last May. But in July, the markets weren't strong around Europe. We didn't go out protesting. But now we have the board be a price index that brings a, a good bit more transparency to the system and attracts the price that's paid in the six markets across Europe where we put 90% of our beef. And that has shown that for the last number of weeks, their first price index showed that there was a gap of 17 cents per kilo between the Irish price and the EU average price, and that there was 45 cents a kilo of a difference between the Irish price and the UK price. Roll forward two weeks, and this day week, the second price index came out, and that showed that that gap had widened to 20 and 50 cents respectively per kilo. And we, the third one was out yesterday, and it showed that that price gap had even widened further. So, you know, when you were talking about 50 cent a kilo of a difference, that's a difference of 200 euro on your 400 kilo steer. And that's a serious amount of money for a sector that's under incredible pressure for so long. So we want um, the markets that we're going into, we want the prices there to be reflected in an immediate price rise by the processors to the Irish beef farmers. Can I put it to you, Joe, that uh, you would have got a lot of publicity a couple of weeks ago when your members blockaded Kildare Street. Uh, But by going to various, if you like, food wholesalers around the country, uh, you're not getting the publicity that uh, you were getting then. And once you're not getting a lot of publicity, that's not putting pressure on the meat producers and the politicians to bring about a resolution to this. And that may be the approach you're taking at the moment may exhaust itself and at the end of it all you may actually end up not getting what you want. Would you accept that? Well, I wouldn't really because for a number of reasons. Despite everything that has been done and the sacrifices farmers have made, um, it wasn't until last Friday since very early on this year, right through the summer, through the autumn, there had been no price increase. Despite the fact that it wasn't nearly enough the first price increase only arrived last Friday. Um, you know, and I think that the message that we were 
uh, getting through to the processors because like you know what you want is maximum impact but uh, minimum disruption to the consumer and to the people going about their their daily job and that's what we're doing here with this uh, it's getting a very clear message to the retailers the retailers are incredibly powerful a lot more powerful in the food chain than a lot of people think or give them credit for and they're quite happy to sit in the long grass take their profits use the likes of meat or use vegetables as lost leaders just to get footfall through their stores. So we, we looked for them. Uh, the IFA looked for the retailers to be involved in the uh, beef discussion talks early on a couple of months ago. We looked for them again at the beef task force and um, they haven't been at any of the tables. So this was one way of highlighting the role that they have to play in the food chain, the power that they have to get a message back to the processors and look, it's, uh, it might be a coincidence, but uh, if it is, that's what it is, uh, that we started our protest last Thursday and there was a, a, a positive movement and a change in the dynamic in the marketplace. Farmers are digging in stronger. Agents are telling me that uh, cattle supplies are a lot tighter to come on and um, farmers are bargaining a lot harder. So the dynamic has changed since last Thursday positive movement albeit not enough on Friday and um, that's why we're back out again this week and look the publicity I think uh, you know the publicity is getting on the likes of LMFM and the local radio shows and some of the national news stations as well that gets the message out there Okay, well, in the places that you protest, you're causing major inconvenience, we'll say, to local contractors and self-employed truck drivers who can't gain access to these wholesale centres. I mean, aren't you being grossly unfair on these individuals and putting their respective incomes at risk? Well, no matter when you have any protest, you will cause a certain amount. What I said there, that we want maximum impact for minimum disruption, and I think that's what we're achieving, and we've We've spoken to a lot of those lorry drivers and, you know, even yesterday one of them came out to me and he said, you know, I won't get a day's wages today. And I said, the lads that are walking around here are from all different parts of the country. They haven't got a day's wages for quite some time. And for you to be able to maintain a job, it's very important that rural Ireland and that the farming economy, that's so important to rural Ireland, the, the, a sector that stayed very solid for the economy through the boom, through the bust, through the recovery. Um, We've continued to grow our agri-food exports every year for the past 10 years. We're producing a product that's second to none anywhere in the world. And, you know, the people appreciate, and the lorry drivers and anyone that we spoke to appreciate the value of uh, farming to the rural economy and to the economy as a whole. Can I put this point to you? Because I've covered a number of uh, meat Pro, uh, protest down through the years mm. has the time not come for an organisation as big as the IFA even the ICMSA for you to club together and set up your own co-ops and process uh, process meat yourself thereby cutting out the middleman and that would increase prices for all the farmers involved has that not crossed your mind? It, it has but you know IFA was set up as a lobby organisation it is a lobby organisation in the last Four years we have lobbied for schemes that has delivered Irish farmers 600 million euros over the last four years. There, but you know a lot of those are new schemes to do with the environment, maintaining the environment, top-ups to existing schemes, the likes of the glass, and the environment comes into it a lot. We would love 
if the marketplace was able to return us a price uh, that would make us viable. But, Ken, when you look at it, Irish food prices in 2018 were cheaper than they were in 2001. If we go back even beyond that, if we go back to the 60s and 70s, there was 30% of the average household income being spent on food. Today in Ireland, there's 9.2% of the average household income being spent on food. In the meantime, the costs of production because of health and safety standards, and that's only right, and, that, and we would promote that, but they have increased. Every time there's an extra cost, there's uh, or an extra ask, there's an extra cost. And the environmental awareness, uh, you know, all the asks there, there's an extra cost as well. But uh, food price inflation hasn't uh, hasn't kept pace with, you know, other, uh, the, the everyday inflation. And okay, that's why Joe, Joe, let me put this point to you. Um, British farmers get paid more than Irish farmers for beef production. It's a bigger country, bigger volume, but if you like... Market dynamics are, if you like, better at work there. Do you accept that in a country like Ireland, it's small, uh, there's a small amount of beef producers in the sector that, uh, at face value, one might form the opinion that there could be a cartel in operation in terms of determining the prices. And I suppose the question I'm putting to you um, is, are you disappointed or are you concerned that the Competition Authority hasn't done more uh, to look at the way prices are determined within this country? Uh, Absolutely, but the Competition Authority has no interest in the producer. And I'll be very fair to them here. We were in at a meeting in the Oireachtas Committee for Agriculture with the Competitions Authority, and they actually said, and it's on the public record, that they were there for the consumer and that they weren't really there to defend the, the, uh, the producer because we have the unfair trading practices that Commissioner Hogan, uh, when he, in his former job as Commissioner for Agriculture, his Agri-Marcus Task Force did a lot of work in relation to unfair trading practices now, we want to get an independent regulator here. We had the UK Grocery Code adjudicator, Christine Taken, over at a meeting. Uh, she spoke at a meeting about a month ago. And we need somebody like her that's independent, that has power, and that can enforce the rules and the laws. And if there's any wrongdoing, that she can bring those to task. We also need a ban on below-cost selling, because while... While retailers are able to use, as I said already, whether it's vegetables or whether it's meat or whether it's any other uh, produce, while they're allowed to use those as lost leaders just to get footfall through the shops, well, then we're on a hiding to nothing. It's it's that uh, race to the bottom, uh, trying to increase their, their market share between the retailers that's putting undue pressure. Sure. Um, and like I know and I talk to, to consumers all the time. I'm a consumer myself. And people know that they're getting great value for money when it comes to food. Okay, for example, jo, jo, can, last year in Ireland, Ken, there was 124 euros a week spent on average by the average family on transport. There was only 123 euros a week spent on food. So, can I just ask you very briefly, because we're up against yeah. the clock on this one. Um, the committee set up by the Department of Agriculture involving the department, involving the meat producers and the farmers. Um, are you making any progress at all? We've only had one of those meetings, Ken, and to be truthful with you, Meat Industry Ireland came into it. Everyone knew the state that Irish beef farming is in. They, I don't know why they came into it. They've been as well off to stay away. It was like as if they were hearing everything for the first time when it came to price pressure on Irish uh, beef farmers. That night on the news, the 6-1 news, their representative said that there are signs of green shoots. At that time, 
the price gap between Ireland and the UK was 50 cent per kilo. You know, so we need to be genuine about it. I would give anything more than one chance, but all parties need to be genuine when they come to that table and the the beef processors representatives were not genuine at that table last week. Okay, finally, Joe, I mean, these series of, if you like, protests at different centres, different days, how long is this going to go on for? Well, it'll go on for the foreseeable future. We have a National Council meeting on Friday and uh, we'll take stock there and see. But, you know, what we need, we have seen a small bit of positive movement, but our markets have continued to move on. So we need to see that our prices reflect our markets. Okay, Joe Healy, President of the Irish Farmers Association, thanks very much indeed for joining us on the programme. Okay, you're listening to The Michael Reid Show. Uh, if you do want to get in touch, you can text us on 086-1800-658. And if you are texting, please leave your name and what part of the world you're texting from. We've more uh, items coming up. We'll be talking to Senator Jade Nash very shortly about uh, the issue of pay for school secretaries. But before all that, we'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMF. Now, as I said, if you do want to get in touch with the programme, please text us on 086-1800-658. and Marie will read out your comments just after the 10 o'clock news. Now, school secretaries are to recommence industrial action on January the 10th next over the failure of the Department of Education to grant adequate pay rises. The increase of 1.5% has been described as derisory and insulting by Labour Senator Jed Nash, and he joins me in studio now. Um, Jed, a pay rise of 1.5%. In terms of cash, how much of an increase would that be for the average school secretary? Well, it's very difficult to say uh, what that would mean for the average school secretary because there is really no such thing as an average school secretary, or indeed school administrators is what I is the term I prefer to use because I think school secretary is quite an outdated term that suggests it's somebody doing uh, fairly standard uh, clerical tasks but we know that school secretaries, school administrators are essentially school managers they're accountants, they're counsellors uh, they're managers uh, they're the first people that you meet when you uh, enter the school gates, you're the first person that you meet when you contact the school uh, with an issue. Uh, the problem that we have here is that there's a two, two uh, tier pay scale and two-tier scale in terms of terms and conditions for school secretaries. So you have school secretaries on the one hand who are employed by the Department of Education, who uh, in other circumstances might be employed by the Education Training Board, the old VECs, who will be on incremental pay scales. They're public servants. Uh, They get paid when there are school holidays. They are entitled to an occupational pension when they retire and all of the things that you'd expect a public servant to have. But the difficulty that we have here is that the vast majority, about 90% of school secretaries across the country, are actually employed by school boards of management on individual contracts. For example... Um, most of the school secretaries we're dealing with here in this case uh, will have to sign on uh, when the Christmas holidays come uh, next week. Uh, they will not be entitled to full pay uh, over their summer holidays, neither will they get an occupational pension when they retire, and many of the school secretaries who are members of Forza Trade Union, the people I'm dealing with at the moment have been for the last year or so, um, are in very, very precarious circumstances. So what they're looking for is not a pay increase, 
Um, a pay increase, of course, would be nice, but what they are essentially looking for is respect, to be treated like public servants, to be treated like the Education Training Board secretaries, to be regarded as public servants, and all that that entails, all the benefits uh, and all the positives that, that that entails. Many school secretaries, I know, can haven't received a pay increase in many, many years. They're paid from the ancillary grant that's received from the Department of Education every year, and the same applies to caretakers. And I want to include caretakers in this discussion as well because um, these um, this engagement with um, the WRC, which arose as a result of industrial action taken by the secretaries in September, uh, industrial action that was suspended in October because of commitments made in the Dáil by both Fine Gael and indeed Fianna Fáil, from what I can recall, uh, it's come to naught. Uh, so these school secretaries will be back on the school uh, taking industrial action, strike action on the 10th of January and they've also engaged in a work to rule. So they're not doing the kind of work yeah. that they were doing, engaging with the Department sure, of Education uh, uh, so on uh, at the moment in protest. And the point you're making was that we'll say Mary in a school in Meath could be played, paid more than Mary in a school in Roscommon and that there's no common. There's no common, absolutely parity is, is, is the correct word. And that's what we're looking for here. So, I mean, to offer as the Department of Education officials did in the WRC yesterday, a one and a half percent pay increase is an absolute insult to the school secretaries who've been campaigning, not just for pay increases, but actually for, for parity with the people who they work alongside. If you go into a school now, you will find, let's say across the road in St Oliver's, you will have dozens of excellent teachers, you will have special needs assistants, uh, you'll have people working at all grades who will be public servants, um, getting all the entitlements and benefits that public servants are uh, expected to, are, are entitled to expect. Um, but, you know, you go down the road to a primary school around, around the corner and you will find, in fact, that the school secretary may be on as little as €12,500 uh, paid um, maybe a small amount above the minimum wage or indeed the minimum wage in some cases uh, and you might do the calculation in your own head and say actually the minimum wage would be more that would come to more than €12,500 a year wouldn't it? Difficulty is they're only paid for the hours that they work during school terms. So for much of the year, they're not working at all and have to sign on. So where does the campaign go from here? Um, unfortunately, they've been left with no option other than to um, recommence the industrial action that was suspended on foot of commitments made by um, the Minister of Education and the Department to engage with the WRC. And they engaged in good faith, expecting that there would be a better outcome than what they were faced with yesterday and what they were offered yesterday. So on the 10th of January, we'll see an all-out strike uh, in the um, schools affected. Um, we will also uh, see uh, the recommencement of what's known as a work to rule. So there will only be schools secretaries will only be doing basic tasks. For example, school secretaries are expected to, as part of their duties, to input data into a system uh, that's governed by the Department of Education, um, you know, to, to allow the school to operate. They will desist from, from doing that, so there's essentially a work to rule um, that, that will be recommenced uh, and until such time as we get satisfactory improvements uh, to the terms and conditions of secretaries. And I want to stress that it's actually about terms and conditions, not just pay. It's about respect. Sure. There's no dignity in having to sign okay. on during school holidays. Ha- has the time not come for school secretaries to effectively be employed as civil servants? In other words, they join at a particular yeah. age and at a certain grade and as they go through life, they're going up in the grades, they're getting the pay, they're getting the pension, they're getting the holidays, they're getting everything. And at the end of their time... 
when they reach 66, you know, they can leave the position with uh, an expectation of a decent pension. Absolutely, and that, that's you hit the nail on the head, Ken. That's precisely uh, what the aim of this um, campaign is, and I think it's fair and reasonable to expect that. These individuals are doing the job of public servants, but they're not getting the same respect and the same, they're not on the don't the same parity to use the term. That and what, what, what's, That's what's, exactly what's, what what's the for. department saying? What's uh, Joe McHugh saying? Um, well, um, they got lots of tea and sympathy uh, in response to a motion introduced in the Dáil uh, in October, and on the basis of some commitments that um, were made and the tone and tenure uh, of the minister on that particular occasion, occasion. Uh, the union uh, and the school secretaries themselves believed that there was sufficient um, evidence there uh, to suggest that the minister and the department would deal uh, with the issue in good faith at the WRC to say uh, that um, the derisory offer made in the WRC yesterday uh, was was that people were taken aback by it as an understatement. Uh, one and a half percent pay increase, even of itself, is nowhere near average pay increases that we expect to see across the economy. It, it's one year, euro fifty 4%. for every one hundred euro earned. It's, it's well, precisely. It's, it's absolutely derisory, and uh, that's not going to help hard press school secretaries to make ends meet. But ultimately, this is about parity. It's about getting onto that scale, being treated like the public servants uh, uh, that we believe they they are, and that's what we ultimately want to achieve with this campaign. Before I let you go, I mean, I suppose that the, the question the government would ask is that. If we'll say school secretaries were to be treated like civil servants, what is the additional cost to the exchequer stroke taxpayer? I don't have it at hand, uh, but I, I did have the information. I can't tell you precisely, uh, but it's a it's a it's a it's a very small uh, amount of money in the scheme of things. The Department of Education is the third highest spending department uh, um, in the in the country. Um, we value our education system, but we don't seem to value our school secretaries. The school secretary system uh, developed really in a piecemeal uh, way over the years, and unfortunately, it's a case now that school managers, principals, and boards of management pay these school secretaries out of the ancillary grant, they pay the caretakers as well. So I don't think that school principals and school boards of management want to be dealing with this either. This creates tension uh, in the workplace and I think we would all be better off if the Department of Education and the Education Training Boards managed this and our school secretaries became the public servants we believe they are. So as the saying goes, Jed, the fight goes on. Does indeed, Ken. Okay, Senator Jed Nash of the Labour Party, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Okay, if you do want to get in touch with the programme, our text number is 086-1800-658. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. As I said, if you do want to get in touch, the text number is 086-1800-658. I'm sure Trevor Connell and the lads in Irish Cement might be very interested in this next item. The leader of new political party Aintu and TD from Meath West, Pather Tobin, has criticised Fine Gael for using the issue of the Dublin-Navan rail line as a political football. There's been much talk in recent years in reopening the line for commuter business, but so far that ambition seems as far away as ever. Joining me now is Pather Tobin, Aintu TD for Meath West. Uh, Pather, you're accusing Fine Gael of treating the rail line as a political football. Why so? Well, first of all, um, the the life of a commuter in County Mead at the moment uh, is very, very, very difficult. It's one of the biggest challenges, I think, that exists uh, for our people in County Mead, and indeed, actually, right through the, the commuter belt. Uh, Mead has the most um, commuters in the country. This morning, more Mead workers left Mead to go to work than actually worked in the county. Now, that happens in no other county uh, in the country. And Mead commuters 
commute further on average than any other commuters uh, in the country. Yet we have Navan is the largest town in the country without a rail line. So you think logically that if you're going to make a, a commuter county of a county, that you would have would put in the ability for people to be able to commute, and that's not happening. So people are commuting between two and three hours every single day. And I know parents who would say to me that they only see their children on the weekends now because they leave their homes so early in the morning and they're arriving home so late. And um, So people are living in literally commuter hell. And there's a cost to families, there's a cost to physical and mental health to that. But there's, a, there's actually a big financial cost too because, you know, obviously keeping a car on the road, paying the tolls, paying the insurance, paying the fuel uh, is big money. So we have had the talk of Navin Rail Line promised for about 20 years. Uh, indeed, it was first mooted in 2005. Uh, Fianna Fáil promised it again under Noel Dempsey. And again, it, w- it was promised in the 2011 election. Uh, however, when it came to it actually being built, neither Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael would actually proceed to building uh, the rail line. And as a result, uh, the commuter experience has just got worse. Now, I'm the chair of the Mead on Track campaign. It's a cross-community, cross-party campaign. And we've been pushing for the government to, to make a decision on actually building it or not for the last number of years. But just recently, the government has said that they're going to hold a, uh, some level of research into the uh, potential uh, of the line in the future. And our argument is, Flagging a potential bit of research or a report on the viability of the rail line a few months out of a general election is back to that same process of where the rail line was used as an election tool. Indeed, many of your listeners will remember in 2011 when Fine Gael, uh, you know, Damien English and Regina Doherty, etc., were seeking election, they promised that the new regional hospital would be built in Navan. And as soon as they got elected, that promise disappeared like snow off a ditch again. So what we're, hoping, what, what, what we're demanding is that this does not become a political football again, that the government just makes a decision to build the damn rail line. Well, now, you're not seriously suggesting that the Fine Gael TDs misled the electorate in Mead, are you? Well, it's, it, 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 it's very interesting that there was a front-page Mead Chronicle report where, where it had literally the five Fine Gael candidates for County Mead all with bright smiles uh, on them. And under that uh, picture, there was a headline which states that the new regional hospital will be built in Meath. And very, very quickly, after Fine Gael came to government, we had James Riley, the then minister, said that that was a nonsense, that wasn't going to happen, that uh, not on, on his watch. Um, so unfortunately, we do have a, a, a history of big-ticket infrastructural items promised by Fine Gael TDs, and then very cynically uh, ignored by the time they get into power where they can actually do something about this. But all the while, you have people who are literally at, at bus stops this morning waiting uh, maybe for, for, for a half an hour at 6.30 to see a bus come along that's full and pass it by, wait for another bus, to then get into uh, along the motorway to get stuck in traffic and to wait for you know, 45 minutes to travel maybe the, the length of three or four miles further to get into Dublin. Uh, and many of people who are regularly late for their own work, you know, where their job and their employer becomes, 
you know, annoyed with them because of the amount of sure. uh, late appearances they make and the stress that that creates in their lives. Okay, but uh, I know you've raised this in the doll, you know, over and over since you were first elected. I mean, every time you submit a question to the Department of Transport, what sort of responses are you getting for, if you like, uh, the government's policy or position on developing the Dublin Navin rail line? Yeah, I raised this on the floor, Doll, a rake of times, as you say, and I've also met with Shane Ross individually in his own office uh, to raise this particular issue. And uh, I've never got a hint of um, determination from any conversation I've had with Shane Ross that this would be built. Um, I don't believe that there, you know, uh, the, the minister has a massive interest in public transport, and I don't believe that he has a, a, an interest at all in rail transport. Now, you've got to you know, put this alongside the fact that Ireland is, is, is in big trouble with regards to the level of CO2 that it's emitting currently. It's reckoned that there will be a fine to this country of about 600 million euros potentially next year because Ireland hasn't uh, reached its targets with regards to the reduction of CO2. Um, we have, you know, potentially a 5.5 billion fine by 2030 if we don't actually meet uh, our greenhouse gas emissions EU targets. Uh, and the idea that we would still depend so heavily on private cars, given that obviously the whole system is banjaxed on the way into Dublin, doesn't make sense. Uh, and I, like, you know, I, I've said to Shane Ross, if we build this rail line, it'll actually take traffic out of Dublin. It'll reduce the level of traffic that's on the M3, and it'll reduce the level of traffic that's on the, um, the, the, the M50 as well. And that will make it easier for commuters elsewhere in the greater Dublin region to be able to get to work. But this has to happen soon. Can I put it to you that um, when the M3 motorway running from, if you like, Clonee to Kells was constructed, that the cost to the taxpayer, I think, was around £800 and that because there are two tolls on the road, that any chance of developing the Dublin-Navin rail line uh, is something that's going to be left on a very, very long finger until the M3 motorway pays for itself. Would you accept that? I think I think you're right. I think that the uh, M3 motorway is one of the sticking blocks with regards to building of this line. And the contracts that Fianna Fáil and Noel Dempsey, the then Minister for Transport, signed with the construction company who built that, uh, guaranteed them a certain throughput of cars through the tolls. And it said that if the throughput through those tolls fell below a certain level, that the government would actually top up the difference uh, in, in money. So when the crash came and obviously the, the volume on the road fell, we had a strange situation here that the Irish government was paying the company that constructed the M3 two million pounds, uh, literally in fines uh, every single year for the lack of throughput that's going through the tolls. So in other words, there's no doubt in my mind that if the government were to choose a, a public transport option that actually suited the great majority of Meath people, the government are worried that that would actually reduce the volume going through the toll uh, and therefore that they would have to supplement that, that, that level of money. But my argument in this and the argument of, of the Meath on Track campaign is this, that so many people are literally in commuter misery at the moment and that it is really important just for the, for, for the, the existence of these families that we actually give them an option to get into Dublin in a reasonable uh, time where they, they can actually depend on the regularity of, of that time. And I'd also make the point that business follows infrastructure. 
So by building a rail line to Navin, it okay. would actually increase the opportunity for us to develop business and enterprise in the county, which would mean probably that less people would need to commute into the future into Dublin. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there because the, the 10 o'clock news is rapidly approaching. That's uh, into Leader and into TD from Meath West, Pather Tobin. Okay, we'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Okay, you've been busy on the text machine, texting in on 086-1800-658. Our producer, Marie, joins me now in studio. So what have people in the Loudmead area been saying this morning, Marie? Lots of comments in this morning, Ken. Good morning to you and to all our listeners. Farmers topping, I suppose, the comments so far. Sean from Drogheda says the farmers are a law unto themselves. They don't care about the inconvenience they are causing to other workers. And he felt that they held the city to ransom um, the week before last when they held that protest in the city. Feels that they are only concerned about themselves and about their own incomes, not other people's incomes. Ken says Geraldine from County Meath, many farmers are struggling. Do we not want to protect our beef industry? We cannot let our beef industry go. It's vital to this country. Farming is such an integral part of Ireland. Farmers need to get a fair price for the produce or else they won't be able to operate. So that's a flavour of some of them. Jim from Trim, also in touch on the same topic. Ken, you are so right. Why do farmers not set up their own co-ops? It makes sense. That way they have control over their prices, says Jim from Trim. Yeah, I think so too. That would uh, cut out the middleman if there was um, if there was a, a scenario whereby the farmers set up their own beef production and then they wouldn't have to pay the other beef producers and then they would actually make money and they could determine the price themselves. Martin from Dundalk, whoever makes the point, who will pay for the rise in the beef prices? Will it be passed on to the consumer? As always. Uh, and yes. we are already paying enough. So essentially, Ken, it will be you and me, says Martin. Yeah. Uh, another listener in touch on the same topic. Not too happy either. Paul from Dundalk. Just want to make the point the farmers are also affecting by their actions the ordinary person because they are going to be losing out on the wages, whether it's those people who are coming in of the, yeah, out of the I, distribution centre. You yeah, did, you yeah, did. Yeah. Or people in Dublin last week, many workers were delayed because of the protests and people that were on the way to jobs and that kind of thing were also delayed because of the tailbacks and the roads being closed. And he wonders if the agricultural show was blocked uh, by ordinary people. How would the farmers like that? Exactly, yeah. So that's his thoughts on it. Moving then, if we can, um, John was in touch to say, he, he's he's a fan, I think, John from Navin, of Regina Doherty, the Social Protection Minister, because he rang in to say, they talk about a Black Friday, but last Friday was a sunny Friday for pensioners because we got a double week's pension. And myself and my wife were delighted and I want to thank Regina Doherty for looking after the pensioners for Christmas. And enjoy so. your holiday in the Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll say nothing, but thanks to John for that call. Uh, Joanne, in touch, was listening to the interview with Senator Gerald Nash, says in relation to secretaries, she, he is absolutely right, that uh, why should a secretary doing the same job as another secretary in a different school uh, be paid different, that there should be pay parity. It's not a fair system and I hope that the secretaries get support from the public with this 
industrial action, says Joanne. Uh, John from Drada says, sure, you wouldn't even give a child 1.5% going to the shop. Well, that's true. <laughs> that is true. The, the way children are these days, yes. That absolutely. it's not uh, enough. Uh, Jack got in touch, says, Ken, there's a big divide in this country between city and country living, and it's going to get bigger as the green vote gets stronger. All these green issues are going to make the divide bigger. You're tall, an electric car works in the city, but I don't think it's really suited to the country. Uh, in city areas, you have the bus and the dart and the Lewis and the taxis and the trains. Country people have none of these things, so don't have the same choice when it comes to being green, if you like. Well, actually, we're going to have an interview with Fianna Fáil councillor John Sheridan later on about remote working. So that could, if you like, help the green agenda. That's right. And that brings me on to my next comment from Sarah, who was listening in to uh, your little promo at the top of the show. And she says, I'm delighted, Ken, that you're going to be covering the whole issue of remote working. Myself and my husband both commute from County Louth in and out of Dublin every day. We spend about four hours travelling, which, if you add it up to five working days, is is a significant amount of hours, 20 hours a week approximately. Both could work from home because of the nature of the jobs we're in. I understand that not every job would allow you that flexibility. And I feel that employers need to be looking at this more as an option so that people can have more time with their families. Sure. That's, say Sarah. It's, a, it's an issue for a lot of people, yeah. It is. Marie mm. from Navin was listening and, you know, Pat Tobin, Deputy Pat Tobin made similar points in relation to that uh, controversy surrounding the Navin rail line. Um, and his accusation that it's been used as a political football by the Fine Gael TDs. When Marie from Navin phoned in and she says, I just want to express my empathy to those who have to sit in the cars and on buses day in, day out. She says, last week I had to travel to now, to from Navin to the Matter Hospital. She says, the traffic was slow moving. It was unbelievable, oh, yeah. Ken. She says we it took us two and a half hours to get from Navin to the Matter Hospital, which is you'd, on you'd the fly to London and back, which is her. on the north side of the city. And she said when I asked, I was told it wasn't even because it was for a particular reason that there was something that had held yeah, up the traffic. Yeah. That's the way it was. Such slow movement. Yeah. And she says the appointment was for 8.30 and we left at 7 thinking we'd have loads of time and we were late for the appointment. We didn't yeah. get there until 9.30. I feel so sorry for people that are having to do this and I just think that the time has come now for our TDs in me to get together and make sure that this rail line does happen because I understand having to endure that one day last week what it's like and her message and, to people going for appointments is give yourself plenty of time. Sure and I was only saying to you earlier on some people think that people in Loud and Meath have it easy because we know people who drive to work from Longford and from Kilkenny into Dublin and like they have to leave nearly two hours even earlier than Meath people to get to work. That's right. Uh, another listener just on uh, that same discussion says that uh, Deputy Pather Tobin is so right about the commuting nightmare that me, the workers, are having to face every day. I'll believe it when I see it, Ken, in relation to the Navin rail line. What our ministers should also be doing is trying to get more jobs to commuter counties so that people don't have to get into the car or onto the bus to travel, that they can actually work in their hometown towns and in their home counties. And that does make a lot of sense too. 
just touching on a topic we discussed yesterday in relation to the this the new road options for the N2 uh, RD to Castle Blaney scheme. A listener got in touch to say listening into your show and I actually only found out last Friday Ken that one of the possible routes is running right alongside my house splitting myself and my father's house which are only 500 yards from gate to gate I did see a sign on the N2 near RD a few months ago but I presumed it was to do with the Kells RD road which was on the agenda at the time I never dreamt they'd put a new road in the middle of the country. Absolute madness that comes in from Ronan. Well, Ronan uh, should uh, make his points known to the powers that be and hopefully uh, that split that he fears won't occur. That's right. On the topic of homelessness, which we've been covering extensively, Anna rang in from Ballymun. Our listeners are all over the place. Thanks, Anna, for that. And Anna is a 78-year-old woman and she slept out on Sunday night for the homeless. And it's her view that the government is a disgrace as they are all tucked up in their own houses, all warm and comfortable, while the poor homeless people have nowhere to go and are on the streets of Ireland. She says that she volunteers in Oxfam two days a week and that she more people should be out trying to help those who aren't as well off. So I just see a text coming in on the screen there. It says, go on the farmers, they're standing up for their rights and bravely so. If there was no amazing Irish farmers, I dread to think what we would be eating. Wake up, people of Ireland. Every work sector contributes to something. Rant your annoyance at the lovely government in place. And that's from a listener in Ratoth. OK. Just a final one. We had um, Deputy Peter Fitzpatrick in on Friday, I think it was, uh, and he was giving out about the government in relation to their housing policy. Of course, he's a former yes, exactly. TD, now yep. an independent. And John from Navin phoned mm. us to remind the deputy of that and to say that he wouldn't have got his seat in Leinster House only for those from the Fine Gael party who voted him in. And now he is criticising Fine Gael and Minister Murphy when he was happy to sit and support them before he left the party because of the abortion referendum. Now, Peter, put that in your pipe. So thanks to John and Davin <laughs> for that. We'll finish on that again. OK, thanks very much indeed, Marie. And if you do want to get in touch by text, our number is 086-1800-658. And if you are texting in, please give us your name and where exactly you are texting from. OK, more to come. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. OK, if you want to get in touch, our text number is 086-1800-658. Richie in Tala has been in touch. She was actually uh, commenting on the uh, remarks that Marie read out there. And he was asking, is that person who spoke very highly of Minister Regina Doherty a relation? Because he says that not only did pensions... Uh, pensioners rather not get an increase but uh, the five euro basically was miserly so he did add that ministers and TDs got a pay rise while pensioners basically got very little and that came in from Richie in Talla in County Dublin. Last week, the Minister for Business, Enterprise and Innovation, Heather Humphreys, announced that she was setting up an interdepartmental group to develop clear guidelines for employees and employers on remote working. Now, Councillor John Sheridan of Louth County Council has described this as a damp squib. Why so, John? Yes, well, good morning, Ken. Um, yeah, I do feel it is a, a bit of a damp squib announcement. 
back in July, the uh, Minister Humphrey announced a consultation in relation to remote working. And I, I think it's fair to say that there was a lot of fanfare about this announcement last week. But really, um, when I went looking into it, there, there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of detail um, that actually has been announced other than an interdepartmental group. And it really, I think, is a reheated policy. There's a lot of talk at the moment of oven-ready policies, but it really is a reheated policy that was already announced. Ken, this is a, a policy I've been working on for uh, quite a few months, even before before the election, and I mentioned it to Michael as well uh, when in the studio. So many people in the area uh, have family members who are commuting uh, long distance to Dublin, getting buses very early, half 6, 7 a.m., and what I think is a lot of those journeys are to office jobs in Dublin uh, that people can be doing from home maybe one or two days a week. And it is such a quality of life issue in County Louth. OK, but do you have to accept, though, that the Minister at least has, if you like, started the ball rolling. She did say that she's setting up an interdepartmental group to develop clear guidelines. You have to accept, though, that this actually is a positive start. Absolutely, and I know from my point of view, I had a motion down at Loud County Council in September in relation to the issue, asking for Loud County Council and the local enterprise office uh, to put together a working group uh, to actually see how this could be promoted in County Loud, what sources of central government funding uh, could be drawn down to promote it in County Loud. So I think at all levels of government, there does need to be working groups uh, available. I think there is a lot of evidence both internationally and people know it themselves here in, in Laos um, that there are a lot of practical things that can be done um, without a huge amount of work. Uh, you know, we, we already have two co-working spaces in Laos, um, uh, one in Laos Village and one in Dundalk, where people can go uh, to centres where they can go and, and plug in and work there. I think there is far more needs to be done about people actually working in their own homes um, so that they, you know, they can have the proper IT equipment. And whether that's supplied by private companies, I think there will need to be work done around um, what incentives are done for those companies and for those employees as well to encourage them to take part in a scheme like this. Okay, now back in September, you had a motion passed at Loud County mm. Council uh, supporting the concept of e-hubs. I mean, mm. it's just the concept, but, um, y- you know, you mentioned their centres in Loud Village, Dundalk, Drogheda, mm. and so on. But, mm. I mean, the government might take the view that uh, these e-hubs are not properly developed the way they should uh, and that, you know, uh, the employer may not be getting the most out of the employee by virtue of the fact that the employee, if you like, is working in an isolation situation from the the company office or the company desk. So isn't the proposal by the minister to put some sort of a proper framework in place, albeit that it's only kicking off, so to speak, that it's a good idea in the long run? Well, I think and it's much more than just a concept. It really is a quality of life issue uh, for so many people. I think there's a lot of uh, evidence from overseas and in the UK and in Australia. Um, there is a, a right to request in relation to something like this where employees need to have very strong grounds not to accede to a request for somebody to be able to do remote working, um, especially you know if their job isn't uh, you know materially dependent on it. I would also say, Ken, I think there's a lot of evidence um, and I know myself and some days when I get to work from home, uh, I think you can actually be more productive uh, on those days than other days. That's a matter of internally for companies about management. But I think people can be more productive when they're in that space. And there has to be a balance as well. People do should continue uh, to go to 
uh, their, their own offices to, to have that balance as well with, with colleagues and, uh, and camaraderie as well in their, their workplaces. So I, I think as well there's other benefits in terms of both childcare and in terms of the environment and to that old cliche about unnecessary journeys, about reducing unnecessary journeys. I think mean, so many people uh, listening will know of their children or grandchildren um, who uh, are doing these trips and the very long days, that possibly even 12 hours that they're away from the county. And find that says if people are spending more time in the county, then it will obviously be more money being spent in the county. And there'll be knock-on benefits uh, for things like Lounge County Council in terms of rates then as well, uh, arising with. So I think any promotion of a scheme could actually be cost-neutral. There you go. That's Loud Fianna Fáil councillor John Sheridan there talking about his concerns over government plans to develop a framework to address what's called remote working, i.e. working from home in this digital day and age where people can do their day's work on a PC or a laptop. You're listening to The Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray sitting in and sitting in for the rest of the week. Now, you may or may not know that it's almost three years since the Assembly at Stormont collapsed. Now, Northern Ireland's parties are set to reconvene for fresh power-sharing talks on December the 16th and Sinn Féin President Mary Lou MacDonald has said that she believes the Stormont Assembly could be restored in time for Christmas. Uh, joining us on the line right now is DUP MLA for South Down, based in Banbridge, Jim Wells. So Jim, uh, Mary Lou MacDonald believes Stormont could be up and running again by Christmas. Do you agree? Well, I don't know on what basis that statement's made, but obviously I'd welcome it. I think everybody in Northern Ireland uh, is, is desperate to see Stormont return. We've been in suspension for three years, and as I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, we're facing an absolute crisis in our health service, and there are so many other issues that desperately need attended to. So therefore, if we can move to a situation of devolution being returned before Christmas... I think everyone will breathe a sigh of relief because we simply can't go on the way we're going. Well, now, as I understand it, a deal was, if you like, on the table, particularly in relation to the Irish Language Act uh, three years ago. Uh, Arlene, uh, it seems, was all for it. And uh, Theresa May and Leo Varadkar went up to Belfast. There was going to be a big announcement. And then at the last minute, the whole thing collapsed. So is the DUP up for, if you like, engaging with the introduction of an Irish Language Act to satisfy Sinn Féin demands? Well, we're certainly up for engaging for, with discussions on the issues that are outstanding. As far as I'm aware, there's been no agreement reached on Irish Language Act, but we've always said that it's a legitimate demand uh, from Sinn Féin. We have concerns with it, but we do feel that it should be discussed. And indeed, Arlene Foster suggested that the Assembly be brought back for a, a limited period to discuss an Irish Language Act, and if it didn't succeed, if we didn't reach agreement, then the Assembly would be suspended again. And I think that was a genuine attempt by Arling to deal with a situation which has caused a lot of controversy, a lot of difficulty for both sides of the community. But my view is that it's best discussed within the Assembly rather than bringing the institutions down simply on one issue. And I think most people agree that there are a lot more important matters to be dealt with now than simply Irish language. But so I would say say that Sinn Féin should come back into, into the Assembly, back into the Executive, but continue to strive for and pursue their demand for uh, what they feel is important to them. 
Well, the Irish Language Act, as I do recall, was agreed at St Andrews in Scotland with the then DUP leader, Ian Paisley. And the DUP, it would appear, have been playing uh, hardball on this because some people in the DUP take the view that if you introduce an Irish Language Act whereby street signs are bilingual, uh, local authority paper is bilingual, that some people in the DUP take the view that this is another incremental step towards a united Ireland. Isn't that the case? Yes, there's a lot of people who feel that it, it, it is a sort of drip drip uh, and I suppose it depends what the nature of an Irish language act is. I mean, does it mean more expenditure for the teaching of Irish language? You already spend a huge amount doing that, but do they want extra resources for that? I think people would quite happily accept that. I think the Signies does cause a problem because the Signies at the minute indicates quite clearly we're part of the UK and not part of United Ireland. The signage is in English, and it's very much in your face. But I, I accept that these are issues that need to be debated. They need to be debated in the flow of the Assembly, but we need an Assembly back as quickly as possible. Can I also say the deal that was done at St Andrews was a side deal between uh, the Irish government and Tony Blair. It was never signed up to by unionism. It was a secret deal. And, uh, you know, there, there, there is bound to be a compromise here that suits everybody. The deal that was uh, proposed in February 2018, um, there were elements of it that were very difficult for the unionist community to accept. And there were other elements there were no problem with. I know, but, but Jim, I have to talk to you about the extraordinary hypocrisy and the double standards of the DUP, because the DUP constantly say they don't want to be treated from mainland Britain. In Scotland, there's a Scottish Language Act. In Wales, there's a Welsh Language Act. But by not allowing an Irish Language Act, you're actually allowing yourself to be different from mainland GP. Isn't that remarkable double standards? Well, we've, we've many differences uh, between ourselves and mainland GB, <laughs> even things like gambling and licensing laws. We're, we're very different. And each uh, devolved assembly, our parliament has its own rules on various issues. But the point is, our difficulty with the Irish language is that uh, it's sometimes used and abused by those who've got a political agenda. It's not been portrayed as a genuine cultural expression. It's been used by people who really have no great interest in the language but want to use it to get uh, worn up, as it were, on unionism. But I still think... But, but aren't, you, aren't you denying nationalists in the North the right to express... Are you the, Northern the, Ireland? Well, Northern Ireland, whatever. Uh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. aren't you denying... I'm not Donegal, Northern Ireland. Yeah, OK, well, we'll say the six counties then. Aren't you denying nationalists? No, I will not say the six counties. I will say Northern Ireland. OK, Northern Ireland, just to keep you quiet, Jim, um, aren't you <laughs> basically saying that you are denying nationalists in the North the right to express their culture and their identity? Well, look, I mean, there's a huge amount of money already given to nationalism in Northern Ireland. They've got Irish language primary and secondary schools. There's a large amount of funding for the Irish language in Northern Ireland. No one is denying anyone in Northern Ireland the right to express their culture. In fact, there would be many who would say that the executive was extremely generous to the Irish language. There's a world of a difference between that and moving forward to institutionalising it in the form of an Irish language act. But... I keep saying that this is something that the Assembly must and should discuss. But the problem is we need an Assembly before we can do any of this. And the problem is we have a system whereby one party 
if they don't want, get what they want, can walk out and bring the institutions down. Well, the, the, the unionists that? have done that in the past, haven't they? No. Yes, they well, did back in 2002. I do recall that unionists collapsed the assembly when the PSNI came in and checked uh, computers belonging to Sinn Féin. And when the investigation was done, they didn't find anything sinister and that unionism collapsed the assembly just for the sake well, of it. <laughs> my name and details were on that computer and I certainly found it uh, sinister. The difference was that uh, that was a fundamental breach of the, uh, the Belfast Agreement, which said we should pursue our purposes by entirely peaceful and democratic means. Now, again, we did try uh, uh, as much as we could to bring the institutions back, and we did. Now, the, the situation now is that Sinn Féin have been out of the Assembly for three years. There are huge problems facing all, the entire community in Northern Ireland. I think there's a huge desire for the Assembly to return to deal with these problems, but also to discuss an issue which I know is very close to the hearts of many nationalists, and that's an Irish language act. And I think it's perfectly legitimate for, for Sinn Féin to table that proposed legislation and have it debated in the Assembly and looked at in great detail. Uh, my, my, my argument is not with Sinn Féin pursuing an Irish language act. My argument is that bringing down the institutions because they couldn't get what they want. If Fine Gael pulled out of Leinster House, would it collapse? I know, no. but come on, Jim. I mean, uh, Michelle O'Neill of Sinn Féin said that if they were going to go back into the Assembly, there was not going to be a return to the status quo. And you know that under the petition of concern process, that every time Sinn Féin pushed something for change, the DUP blocked it. And Sinn Féin effectively said, we're not having this any longer. And that you, instead of working with Sinn Féin, you facilitated the collapse of the Assembly. Isn't that the case? Well, well, first of all, can I tell you, Sinn Féin were mighty quick to use the petition of concern as well when it suited them. For instance, when we wanted to read definition of victims so that only innocent victims would receive payments, Sinn Féin were in like lightning to put down a petition of concern to ensure that those who were injured planting bombs got the same compensation, compensation as those who were injured by the same bombs. So we need, Sinn Féin can't give us lessons on the use of petition of concern. But equally, yes... There should be a discussion when the Assembly comes back on the role of that mechanism. Okay, These well, are all legitimate issues that should be debated. Okay, now, I just want to move on because uh, we, we, we can get bogged down on the Irish Language Act for the next hour. But the Secretary of State, the new Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Julian Smith, has said that an agreement must be reached between the parties to restore the institutions by January the 13th. Otherwise, he will feel compelled to call uh, new Assembly elections. Isn't the reality for the DUP that you guys are running out of road? Because if the next Assembly elections take place in the next few months, there is a strong possibility that Sinn Féin actually could become the dominant party and that the days of DUP dominance will be over and better for the DUP to strike a deal with Sinn Féin now while it's still in a position of dominance. Isn't that the case? Well, we'll just see who the dominant party are on Thursday. As you know, we have a Westminster election in Northern Ireland, and I suspect uh, all the polls would indicate that Sinn Féin will uh, that Sinn Féin will be lagging behind the DUP quite considerably. So I, I believe that the, that the most recent elections is the best judge of that. Uh, secondly, um, yes, you're right. If there's no agreement made by the 13th of January or no potential agreement, then we go to an election. Now, frankly, I do not... Very briefly, Jim. 
I don't see what that's going to achieve because we will simply find that there'll be two large blocks returned. I think we desperately need to reach agreement and get devolution back before the 13th of January. Not for the DUP or Sinn Féin, but for the million, one party, million people okay. now desperately want a restoration of devolution. OK, we're going to have to leave it there. Jim, as always, thank, thank you. you very much indeed for uh, participating in our programme and we appreciate your contribution. That's uh, Jim Wells, DUP MLA for Southdown. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, moving on, Councillor Ronan Moore, who is a Social Democrats councillor on Mead County Council, has called on Mead CC to undertake a gender pay gap review and implement any recommendations as soon as possible. And uh, in bringing forward this motion, Councillor Moore states that currently the gender pay gap in Ireland is 13.9%, which means that women are getting paid an average of 13.9% less than men. The European Institute for Gender Equality and the Gender Equality Index shows that women's mean monthly earnings are €2,808 in Ireland compared to €3,423 for men. And Councillor Ronan Moore joins me on the line right now. I mean, is it as bad as you say it is, Ronan? Uh, yeah, I think the, I think the, the facts speak for themselves that it's um, we're close to fifteen percent, thirteen point nine percent. But I think sometimes when we when we look at this, we sometimes think of the same job that people that maybe women are paid less in the same job, and that can take place maybe sometimes more in the private industry, but particularly in public sector. What often happens is the main issue skewing pay in favour of men is effectively the underrepresentation of women in management positions, um, and this oftentimes happens as people probably know when um, people get into the thirties. This is often the time in people's lives where they kind of move up in positions and promotional opportunities become available and because oftentimes women have to take a step back um, they're having children um, and due to maybe inflexible work options or the lack of affordable childcare they don't have that opportunity to progress in an organisation as their male counterparts and that effectively um, creates the, the pay gap um, and of course I guess when I'm looking at this and I'm bringing forward this motion there's really two er- two elements I'm looking at the first obviously is the, the unfairness that this, this, this brings like this kind of persistent inequality that, that take play, takes place and obviously that's one thing I'd like to see this pay this uh, gender pay gap would um, review would, would uh, deal okay, with Okay well can, can, can I put the question to you that um, I, I've looked at figures I've done stories on this in the past whereby yeah. in, in, in industry uh, men tend to rise more so through the ranks simply because more and more women opt out of the workplace to raise children and that therefore if more men are at the top they're earning more than the women uh, if you like in lower positions yeah. but but the real issue is not so much uh, a gender inequality when it comes to pay but the fact that so many women have to opt out of the workplace because of the ridiculous and punitive cost of childcare and that politicians would be better off if they were pushing more so for a, a childcare culture like they have in Sweden uh, and that would do if you like uh, better things to get more and more women up through the ranks in industry and therefore that in itself would achieve uh, better equal pay would you agree with that? I would absolutely 100% well I'd I'd, I'd 100% agree in terms of as politicians we need to be doing more and I know my own party, the Social Democrats in opposition, one one bill that we were very very proud proud to bring forward and it has gone through has been the extension of the unpaid parental leave 
that has gone up to six months. So that was a bill that we brought forward for all of those reasons that you've just mentioned, and that's having a huge impact on those parents who are able to, 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 to take that. And as a result of that, what we're seeing is that more men have, have the opportunity to be able to take unpaid parental leave and, and take, I guess, uh, help at the, in the home looking after children, especially when you have childcare issues. However, that said, there are things that organisations and businesses can be doing. And I think that probably leads to my second point, that for a lot of businesses, organisations, and particularly for the likes of ourselves and the Council, it makes sense to close that pay gap because ultimately when you have um, as you, more women in management positions, you have a much more diverse workforce and it tends to lead to better decision making. And as well as that, it also helps you attract and retain strong um, female graduates. So if you can imagine if you're a young, I guess, female engineer, you're coming out, um, looking at opportunities in the workforce, and if you were to see that, say, Council A has a 0% pay gap, which shows you that in management um, there is an equal number of men and women and therefore you're probably more likely to go to that organisation, to that council and I think for ourselves in the county council what I'm saying is that what we should be doing is to close it to make sure that we attract um, this this young professional workforce Sure, now you're calling on Mead County Council to undertake a gender pay gap review and one might form the impression from that that there is a serious gender pay gap within Mead CC I'm not so sure Jackie Maguire, the Mead County Manager, uh, would fully agree with that. So why are you, if you like, calling on Mead County Council and not so much on the government? Well, look, effectively, I think Mead County Council, we're the most under-resourced council in the country, we're the most understaffed per capita, and I think we do exceptionally well with the resources that we have. Um, I think this is an opportunity for ourselves to, to be a, a leader because in the response the council have given me, and this is, I think, a very positive response, they are, they are raising the gender pay gap information bill, which is soon to be brought forward by the government, which will effectively push any organisation that has more than 500 staff, which will include councils across the country, to initiate their own gender pay gap. Now, I'm hoping, and I, I, I would imagine that the Mead County Council do quite well in this. So on post recently did their own gender pay gap, and they found it, I think, about 3.7 or 8%, which obviously is less than the national average. And I could see Mead County Council being the same. However, what I would say is that in a, what we should be doing as a council, we should be getting doing the groundwork so we can start identifying some of the challenges that we have and some of the things that we can put in place. So when this comes down the line, we can be have been very proactive and that we can quick, quite quickly identify what we need to do to make sure that our gender pay gap, which I think would be less than that average, will be reduced even further and therefore that we can guarantee that again as a council we can continue to attract the best and brightest young graduates out there. Finally, John, and I know, I've, or Ronan rather, I've, I've touched on this already. I mean, it, it, the reality is nothing's going to change until we sort out childcare. Once women are allowed to stay in the workplace, only then will they rise naturally through the ranks and they will rise, uh, we say, pro rata with men in terms of opportunities within the workplace and pay. So wouldn't politicians like you just be better off making more noise about childcare? Absolutely, absolutely. And look, as a social, as social democrats, like we look to our Scandinavian counterparts, the social democracy, social democrats countries up in Scandinavia, where childcare is a norm and is an accepted norm. 
and ourselves as a party. That's one of our key cornerstones that we've been pushing for the last number of years. And as I said, I think probably the standout achievement that we've been able to do in opposition has been to bring in unpaid parental leave and extend it. We can't bring in anything as an opposition party, as you well know, Ken, that's going to cost money to the exchequer. So we are somewhat, our hands are somewhat tied in what we can do. But I think our hope and our ambition as becoming involved in possibly the next government, that we will be able to really push childcare to, to tackle the exorbitant costs that people are having to face on a day-to-day basis. Okay, we're going to leave it there. That's uh, Councillor Ronan Moore of the Social Democrats, a member of Meath County Council there, talking about the gender pay gap review issue. Okay, we'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, you've been busy on the text machine. Shay Kelleher has been in touch from Belcamp in Dublin. He says he's very annoyed over TD's expenses and he makes the point that they should... Uh, stop receiving expenses and let them claim on their tax returns. Somebody else texted in about the meat industry but didn't leave a name and didn't leave uh, an address, uh, i.e. where he or she or they were texting from, other than to say that he'd been in the retail meat industry for the past 40 years and there's a couple of things he would like to point out, that beef farmers in Ireland are the best in the world at what they produce, no doubt about that. He says, I could safely say that well over 100 independent butcher shops have closed their doors over the past few years and the main reasons being overheads have gone through the roof. Insurance is expensive and for some uh, producers and retailers it's impossible to stay in business. So thanks very much indeed for that text. Okay, we're going to move on because uh, we're coming towards the end of the programme. We're counting down the days towards Christmas and many people are asking, have we lost the true meaning of Christmas? Well, our producer Marie Kearns put that question to people on the streets of Drogheda. No, not really. No. I mean, people say to be looking forward, more forward to it now than they did before. And what does it mean to you? Uh, it means a hell of a lot, because right, I have no small kids now, but, but I had them. I uh, used to be up at six o'clock in the morning and get, get everything ready for them. You know, but it's great. I think it's very good. And what about people getting into debt? Oh, God, I wouldn't go down that road. <laughs> oh, God, no, I wouldn't go down that road. I wouldn't get into debt for nobody. If I hadn't got it, I'd do it out. And do you have any traditions that you do as a family? Uh, yeah, I do ask them up for their Christmas dinner every Christmas day. And then some of them then comes up for their tea and the steam as I say. So that's my lot then done for Christmas. And would you go to Mass? Oh, God, I. Oh, yes, I do, yeah. Yeah, I go to Ballsgrove. Mass, never miss. I go to Midnight Mass. It's brilliant. It's absolutely lovely. I think it has. I think uh, everyone's just spending money just to please everyone else. It's not all of a please, you know, keeping everyone happy, really. Uh, I find it hard now. I have two young kids and working on a mortgage and trying to you know get what you can get you know without going broke we go to christmas eve mass yeah every year we do we make it a tradition now with the kids we'll bring them to they love it now you know we love it too because we grew up doing it as well so i kind of want to keep it there with them so that's part of your christmas that's the meaning of christmas for you well, it, it, for really, for us, it's for spending it with our family and that, like, you know, because you don't know, you wake up tomorrow and you don't know what you have, you know, so I think Christmas, you just enjoy it while you can. For some people, I think it has, but um, I think most of us try to hold on to it. And um, it depends on your age, really, whether you're going back to what you did as a child or whether it's all technology and 
alcohol and everything like that. So it's, um, I think it, it depends. And then, of course, we have so many different nationalities and ethnic groups in Ireland now, some of who don't celebrate Christmas at all, which is fine. So um, that all needs to adapt and move along in the context of modern Ireland. So. And for you, what does it mean? Uh, it means time off. It means coming together with family. Um, it means remembering um, and going to church and remembering the first Christmas. Um, no, not really, but I think everyone's trying to keep up with what they can't keep up with. Everyone's keeping up with the Joneses and it's just not acceptable. People should just have what they have. Christmas means family, child is happy, warm, comfort in a home with a roof over his head. So once he's happy, I'm happy. And you hear of people who maybe get into debt over Christmas. Can you understand that or do you think people should pull back a little? I understand it, but I do think people should pull back because one it is only one day of the year. You know what I mean? Um, I'd rather see more people housed than people spend money on crap. I still think it's a real family thing, so I do. Do you look forward to it? I do. I love Christmas, yeah, every year. And some people get into debt at Christmas time. What would you say about that? Would you be thrifty with your money? Oh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't overspend. Now, I kind of only get, like, my kids are all grown up now, but I'd only get them what they kind of look for. I wouldn't go over the top. I don't believe in putting myself in debt for Christmas. If I can't afford it, they don't get it. But you say it's family time. Would you have any particular traditions together as a family? Well, we don't open any presents before Christmas Day. Everything's done Christmas morning. Um, we all sit down as a family for Christmas dinner. We all kind of contribute. One of my daughters makes soup for starch, or my other daughter makes the dessert. I make the dinner, so... We all do a bit. Um, no, I don't think so. I love it when people are generous to each other and nice to each other. And that's what Christmas is all about to me, you know. And do you have any special traditions that you do year in, year out? Oh, well, no, just family stuff, you know, and Christmas decorations and the dinner and all that sort of thing, yeah. Do you think the whole meaning of Christmas has been lost? I do indeed, yeah. I think it's gone more commercialised now. A lot of shops even, there's no there's no meaning of Christmas anymore, whereas before you used to go to midnight mass and stuff. I don't think that's about anymore. It's all commercially advertised for ties and stuff, and that's who's making the money. And do you try and keep some meaning for Christmas in your own family? Oh, I do indeed, yeah. We bring them to mass Christmas morning and try and make it out that it's all about Jesus and bring the holiness into it as well. You feel that's very important? Of course I do, yeah. What about people who might get into debt over Christmas? It's very easy to do that. We hear about people doing that all the time. It is indeed. It's, you can get into debt over it and it's, it's not good. Like in January, people are pulling back and it's great for the young kids. I have two young kids myself, but at the end of the day, we should be really thinking of the meaning of Christmas and thinking of the people that's not, not around and try and help people that needs the help yeah like when I look at kids now um, Christmas morning they have you know 30, 40 big big presents when we were younger you'd have your doll your selection box and that would be it and that would be what what you would have for the entire Christmas you know so I just see it it's very 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 materialistic now yeah the whole meaning is gone my opinion and what does it mean to you uh, getting together with family and friends, seeing people you haven't seen in a long time. I used to be really gift orientated years ago, and now, like, it's not. It's not about that. It's just getting together with people that you love, actually that you like, <laughs> and um, yeah, just the materialistic thing. That that's that's a massive aspect now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a little bit. I think the the focus is definitely more on consumerism, 
and I just think the meaning of it and the kindness and yeah just I, I do think so I think I think especially now with the introduction of this whole Black Friday and shopping it's like it feels like Christmas is about steroids this year like that it's all focused on spending your money getting your money buying as much as you can and it nearly feels like there needs to be like a two-month preparation you know for Christmas like whereas really you don't need all that time like you know so yeah I, I think a little bit yeah and what does it mean to you personally like I can remember from my Christmases when I was young like you know there was that sense of community that sense of you know being a little bit extra kind people you know it just and there definitely was that focus of we're all in this together like we're all being a little bit kinder to each other we're all taking a moment just to appreciate the good things in life and yeah that's what for me anyway like personally like for my kids that's I'm going to try and pass on to them just that little bit of kindness and be extra kind and there you go some interesting views about the meaning of Christmas from the streets of Drogheda there from our reporter and producer Marie Cairns. We're hoping to bring you the Loudmead Crime Desk uh, this morning but unfortunately Gardaí were unable to make it on this occasion. And that just about wraps it up for this morning. Paul McKenna was on sound Marie Cairns produced. I'll be back again tomorrow morning. So for myself, Ken Murray, good morning, God bless and Sinead Brazel is next. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.